0: Hello and welcome to the Ireland the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. For this latest episode, we wanted to speak to a cork fly angler, Ronan Collins, whom I first met in Greenland last year. Ronan has fished in many far flung places around the world and is a particularly keen salmon angler with incredible stories from Russia and elsewhere. So we thought why not get him on to share some of his experiences of fly fishing around the world. Plus he has also introduced me to the wonders of yacht rock, but more on that later. And Tom, before we hear from Ronan, I think the one thing that stands out for me talking to him was how fly fishing is nearly a, a byproduct of just being able to explore the world in a way.
1: Yeah, Dara. It's, uh, it's funny, funny when you say that. Yeah, because don't really think of that that much sometimes. Because, you know, sometimes we concentrate on the fishing. Just when you said that, they're just thinking, yeah, I mean, like, I got to see fantastic. I, and I take this from my own personal uh, experience. I mean, I got to go to to, to New Zealand and experienced um New Zealand which I wouldn't have done if I didn't fish yeah um yeah. and I didn't fish all the time in New Zealand I was there 5 weeks and I did a lot of other things and it was absolutely fantastic and as i said i would not have got highly unlikely I would have gone to New Zealand if it weren't for the fishing and a couple of other places i've gone to um just think oh, i wouldn't i've gone. i've been to lapland um that was fishing in sweden and that was fantastic as well. That was a fantastic experience. That was competition. Yeah, so it's it's true. And like you yourself, I mean, just thinking there, I mean, with Ronan, you got to see Greenland. I mean, like, why would you go to see Greenland other than fishing? When you think of it,
0: yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's exactly. And actually, a phrase I know we're talking about the world, you know, with Ronan in this episode, but like, it could also mean Ireland, you know, and and it even, can even mean your locality. And mm-hmm. and I mean this in the sense of. I don't know if I said it before in the podcast, um, like when I moved down here, you know, South Tip, fishing around the shore and the environs around here, I know all the back lanes and all the places and all the stretches of water that I was able to tell my wife's family about who've been here for 300 years or (laughs) (laughs) however long, that they never knew about all these different places. And I thought it was fascinating. And I'd be taking them for walks along the river, along these stretches that they never even knew existed. Like, you know, and so... Yes, we're talking about Greenland, Lapland, New Zealand, but it's it, like I said, it's it's Ireland. It's your locality. It takes you to these places people don't know about.
1: It's very true, actually. And you know, I would have thought of that just before you just said it to me. I mean, immediately when you said that, I would have think of the far-flung places, and then I just think of the places, the places here, you know, the hill lakes I've gone to, the hillocks back here that would never have gone to. You know, and this is just back towards Connemara and places like that, and other places in Ireland and. The places are fantastic and you wouldn't get to see them otherwise, but um, personalities and and experiences. And actually, speaking of experiences, Yacht Rock? What's
0: <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yes, I mentioned Yacht Rock in the introduction. yes <laughs> So Ronan comes and introduced me to Yacht Rock while we're uh, in Greenland. Sorry, I'm just laughing whenever I think about it. Okay, so... <laughs> Ronan's a big, uh, he's a big music fan as well. He's a big aficionado. And uh, he says, we were sitting in the lodge, the bar, <laughs> I think it's the first evening in Greenland. And he starts saying, uh, he says, you know, Terry, you're you're educated man. You know, you're you're curious. I'm sure you know about Yacht Rock. I was like, what the hell is Yacht Rock? And he's like, you don't know Yacht Rock? I was like, no. And then some of the other Cork lads are like, oh, Yacht Rock, you've started them now. So basically what it is, right? It's kind of like, um, Okay I'm to, I'm taking from I'm just looking online right picture it now lounging on a swish boat as a bobs along the water you're sipping cocktails and proving your tan and this the 1980s and there's only one style of music that goes with this yacht rock known as west coast sound or adult oriented rock it's a style of soft rock from between the late 70s and early 80s right so it's stuff like uh steely dan um i'm trying I'm looking here kenny logan's heart to heart hard to say i'm sorry do you know the kind of st- do you know the stuff i'm getting into now I'm, I'm actually going to play a little bit right just so people can get a vibe hurry boy it's waiting there So picture it, we're in Greenland, we're in the middle of nowhere beside this uh, this river and uh, next minute <laughs> all I hear is <laughs> this yacht rock songs playing across the riverbank <laughs> and I look across and it's Ronan Collins sitting there with his, uh, his beatbox <laughs> chilling out beside the river having caught arctic jar on the fly while chilling to yacht rock. <laughs> oh my God. We had Yacht Rock for the entire trip. You can check it out if anybody's into it. Um, So back to this episode, and I suppose this is part of the reason we talk about, you know, going to far-flung places, meeting fascinating people. I met Ronan on that, you know, all the Cork lads, the English lads on it as well. And, you know, it was fascinating stories. It was just hearing from people like that and getting all these different influences, whether it's Yacht Rock or not. Um, And for me, I said, look, sure, let's hear from Ronan, you know, let's talk to him about all the different trips he went on. So let's hear from Ronan Collins now. And I first asked him about his recent trip in November when he was fly fishing off the West African coast of all places.
2: I feel a small bit of a fraud being on such a a prestigious uh, fly fishing podcast, but nevertheless, uh, I will assume the role that I'm some sort of of (laughs) proficient at fly fishing um, to be able to speak about it. But yeah, I, I originally started fishing. I suppose my fishing journey originally started by the sea. Um, and like all people, I read this once in a book that people have three stages of fishing. Uh, number one, you want to catch fish. And when you're a youngster, you really don't care what they are. You just want to catch fish. Uh, then you go through and as many as possible. Uh, then you go through a phase where you want to catch the biggest fish and the bigger, the better. And I went through a bit of that phase as well uh, around the world. And then, of course, you end up where we are uh, trying to catch uh, the most difficult fish by the most difficult means possible. Uh, which fly fishing, uh, from various species, but salmon probably been the most difficult fish to catch, given that it doesn't want to eat in a river. But in any case, uh, so I, I suppose the most recent trip to West Africa was a return to my roots. Um, I had originally my journey in fly fishing was that I was progressing from lure fishing for bass to fly fishing. Um, because my colleague Jim Hendrick down in Wexford is such a proponent of fly fishing at sea. And so I was beginning to try and grapple with this. And Jim said, you really need to go to someone to learn how to cast. I can't really teach you maybe as as well as other people might. So he sent me to to Glenda Powell in the Blackwater. And then, of course, I got hooked on river fishing. So this marks about a dozen years later, I'm finally getting back to saltwater fly fishing. So Jim Hendrick and myself, it had been a long-term ambition of mine. I read it once in a French magazine to go to this place, um, Guinea-Bissau, which is below Senegal and above Guinea in West Africa. And then various uh, outbreaks of Marburg virus and Ebola virus uh, stopped us from going. So we finally made it this time. And uh, it was quite an adventure, I have to admit. There was a bit of planes, trains and automobiles on the way there. Um, and Even more so than of- Greenland, was
0: it? Oh,
2: worse and some very strange trips like from Casablanca to Cape Verde into Guinea-Bissau and of course landing at that airport is a completely different experience from anywhere else Um, let's say you you have to be uh, creative uh, in your handling of security to get through uh, the airport in Guinea-Bissau creative usually has a euro sign beforehand but in any case uh, an amazing place uh, the archipelago out there uh, where the Bajego people live Uh, It was absolutely beautiful environment, full of the most incredible bird life and ocean life uh, almost every time you looked uh there was mullet diving for their lives as they were being pursued by predators and there was just an array of predators obviously there's barracuda there's um uh, west african um mackerel uh there's um obviously crevels jack pompanoos uh even just a humble lady fish uh they were just which you'd be proud to catch an any river normally in Ireland uh, but you could catch a dozen of these at a sitting and they would all put up a very good fight uh, for their two and a half three pound weight the ladyfish it was an astonishing really was an astonishing environment it really was so were you fishing from the shore or were you on boats going offshore well I, I, I'm, I'm not I, I've no Pecuniary interest whatsoever in naming this place, but we fished off an island called Kir Island, um, which is out in the archipelago. Uh, and Laurent, uh, the Frenchman who runs it, has a very interesting story because in order to uh, have this business there amongst the Bejego people, he had to become uh, a member of the Bajegu uh, tribe himself, uh, and and that necessitated a, a kind of a three month initiation in the jungle, uh, and then an invitation from the local. Um, Shaman, I presume because they have a voodoo culture, uh, which involved kind of the decapitation of a chicken head and seeing which way the chicken would run. And if he ran in a certain direction, wrong could start his business. And he did run, luckily enough, in the right direction. So he could start his business. But then he had to double down on it in case the chicken ran that way by chance and decapitate a second one to see which way he ran. So both chickens happened to run in the same direction. It must be some form of neurological phenomenon. And and anyway, Laurent got permission to run his business. And literally, he set up this fantastic ecotourism fishing business on Clear Island. And literally, you could spend most of the week fishing from the shore there. Because uh, the tide sweeps around the island in both, in both directions. And, you could, and there's a beautiful sandbank just off it. Uh, but of course, we ventured further out into the archipelago. And it was amazing. Just the bird life was amazing. And the sea life was just amazing. It, it was an incredible experience. I can say I fished brilliantly. Um, saltwater fishing, uh, fly fishing would be relatively new to me again. Uh, uh, but you know, I had two masters there in a... Uh, Philip Dolivet from uh, uh, Brittany in France and Jim Hendrick. And literally, all I can say to you is that you could not um, power up strong enough. I mean, we were using regularly 60, 80 pound um, leaders uh, on the fly. These fish are extremely powerful. Uh, and of course, the environment you're fishing in very often involves reefs and coral, et cetera, et cetera. So you really need strong
0: leaders. Was there any particular fish you were targeting? Yeah, we were ch- we were ostensibly
2: mainly targeting Jack Crevel. Uh, Jim got two beauties, um, and uh, I lost probably two one. Um, literally tore me up on the coral uh, um, and you know but I was learning a lot as I was fishing with the guys um, about the technique uh, and the casting of course is challenging when you're out in the open ocean uh, and you're casting with kind of your know, sinking leaders and sinking lines and you know, so it, it was all a big experience for me uh, and you know casting with the wave rocking the boat and we were you know we were miles out in the ocean on a couple of occasions watching these massive kind of hawaii 5 style breakers coming over coral reefs and we we're out there with these local guys uh, and i hope my wife's not listening to this with no life jackets
1: <laughs> Oops. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we would no idea where we were going until he brought us out there. But it was a spectacular experience. It really was. It sounds absolutely fascinating, Roland. Just one thing there: you're talking about the difficulty,
1: of the casting. What what weight outfits were you using?
2: Yeah, so generally, kind of, I suppose your standard outfit would probably be a kind of a nine weight rod, and that would be your standard um, outfit. Um, and you you could go up to a 10-weight. Uh, there are some tarpon there, but we didn't target them. Uh, but generally, a 9-weight would do you. Um, and that's probably a good utility rod to bring. Um, good all-rounder. Yeah, good all-rounder. And intermediate, I did bring some floating with sinking tips, but actually, you do, need, you do need to bring intermediate and sinking lines, really, when you're fishing for these fish. They do come up near the surface. Uh, I mean, just watching the bait balls being hammered uh, by these jock jacks is i mean i felt i kind of felt sorry for the mullet at the end of it like they have a miserable existence really <laughs> they're, in a, they're in a state of constant terror everything is hammering at them there's about five species and then they're being attacked from the air as well by sea eagles and you, you uh, don't want vultures. to come back
1: you don't want to come back as a mullet then, I think.
2: definitely do not definitely <laughs> do not want to come back as a mullet in west africa that's for sure <laughs>
0: And actually, what was this? You were saying, um, Jim got some decent ones. Like, what kind of size are you talking about?
2: Yeah, so I he hooked one that was probably close to the 20 pound mark, that would be very big for Jack creval But it's the sheer strength of these fish uh, that kind of really impresses you. And of course, they're very often traveling in the current, so when you've got a strong fish traveling in the current, you, you know, you're going to have a, a royal battle. I mean, Jim's fly rod, I could show you if it is a literally at its maximum. Now, the other thing I learned from Jim is that there's no messing around. There's no kind of, you know, uh, playing it lightly with these fish. You have to be hard from the start and really hard. And that's probably something I... naturally wasn't comfortable with uh, fishing hugely. I do bring my fish in quickly, but probably don't bully them as much as you need to bully these fish. If you don't bully these fish, they will take you around the coral, they will get into the stream and they will strip off 150 yards before you can say Bob's your auntie and you know, and you will lose them. And come here, how much of it was side fishing? Almost almost none of it.
1: <laughs> so you ba- oh so basically you know I was thinking that when you said you're on an intermediate and sink tip. So I take it they're they're taking A a bit down in the water table. They're not right. Yeah, they are.
2: They're generally, most of the species actually, um, as Philip Dolivet was teaching me this, and Jim you know, they actually go underneath the bait ball and come up and attack them. Uh, You want to see the barracuda there hitting the fly, and even guys who are lure fishing there, they come vertically out of the water and often hit the lure and drive the lure a meter above them in the air and then try and catch it there. It's like, I don't know, it's like acrobatics for barracuda or something.
0: <laughs> how did you, obviously Jim's uh, fished a lot of places salt water uh rolling around the world? Like how did he uh, he rank it? And like is that was that his first experience of that kind of West African fly fishing? Uh
2: it was yeah, it was, and I think um those of you that know Jim will know that he loves nature and he loves photography. Uh and like me, he was really initially it was quite overwhelming, uh, just the sheer beauty and expanse of the place. Uh, the uniqueness of the environment uh, and of course the heat was another issue uh, i mean we were fully covered up you know we were out there in open ocean at 38 39 degrees it was hot um, and you know, i think one day in a new medical record I I think I drank about 8 liters of water and didn't have a piss all day. Can you say that on the podcast? <laughs> I mean, I thought it was an acute you just, you just t- have. Oh yeah, well I, th- <laughs> I, I I was beginning to wonder <laughs> had my kidneys completely failed, but literally the water was just disappearing out, out of you as fast as you were drinking it in and just the sheer kind of heat of the place. So that is something that you know you've got to be able to uh, handle that uh, and that's not for everybody either. Um, and if I had one criticism, it would be that some of the fishing kind of occurs in the middle of the day when really you'd be better off uh, in your hammock under in the shade. Uh, but listen, it was a fantastic experience. Um, I would say to anybody, uh, if you want something that's really unique, I'd go experience kir Island uh, uh, with Laurent and his crew there, it's a fantastic, uh, a fantastic little uh, adventure, and there's a lot of ecotourism there as well. Of course, um, that, that you can do.
0: But it's obviously probably underdeveloped. It's, it's only just really, you know, it's funny that the pictures I saw you sent me around. It, it reminded me kind of of the, I suppose Bahamas. You know, that kind of the, the water, the color, the, the you know, just the sunshine, all that kind of stuff. But on the West African side, so it's 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 it's, it's less developed, shall we say, like.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. Um I also I think the amount of species you would have, you know, in terms of what you can fish for without strip, I think most of the lodges in the Bahamas, et cetera, you're kind of going bone fishing. Um mm. uh, and uh, and in essence that's what you're doing. Whereas on these um, you know, mud flats or sand flats, literally you could pick up one of six or seven species. Um you know it is you know it is that um it is that kind of fruitful out there uh but it was it was a great experience it really was i definitely would go back to west africa
1: i was going to ask you that Robert, because sometimes it's 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 the essence of how good a place is if you ask somebody would you go back and uh, so you would go back
2: oh yeah definitely i would go yeah. back the environment yeah. was amazing and i think i would fish it better this time uh, because you know, it was a very new. I uh, I I don't really go on fishing holidays, to kind of uh uh to be a good fisherman. Because more often than not, I'm not. But I tend to go on holidays to learn something new, uh, which makes you uh, a better fisherman. Obviously, uh, I'd say I'm a, probably a, an adequate fisherman. But uh, by the time I'm seventy, I hope to be good. And uh, by the time I'm eighty-five, I hope to be very good. And hopefully, my nineties, like my great friend Dave Whitron, who's uh, well up in those age bracket, I hope
0: to be excellent. Give us an idea of some of the other places you've been in the last few years. Yeah, well, obviously pre-pandemic.
2: Yeah. So, I, listen. First of all, it I don't have any other really uh, I suppose, um, hobbies other than fishing. So, I you know, I, I don't have a huge expenditures in golf or stuff like that. Uh, I'm not really into I do, the car part of my brain is missing. So I don't have a big outlay there or anything like that. So I, I you know, fishing is my, um, is my luxury, if I can put it like that. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to afford some of these trips, of course. Um, but because the last year, I mean, the two trips rolled in this year because they had been rolled over from the pandemic. And if I didn't go, obviously you would lose your deposit, et cetera, et cetera. So ordinarily I would try and treat myself to once a year.
0: Give us an idea of some of the places you've been to in the last few years.
2: I was fortunate enough to be in Russia a couple of times. I don't think that'll be happening again anytime soon. (laughs) And for many people, it's a shame. Again, I was lucky to fish three of the rivers. And again, I suppose the environment, the nature was fantastic. Um, I unfortunately, I didn't get over to the eastern side either and won't be happening now. But I believe that's even more spectacular. My fishing was confined really to the Kola Peninsula, but some of the rivers there were, were just outstandingly beautiful. And there was some great moments of fun there as well. I mean, anyone who's done that helicopter ride from Murmansk uh, into the Kola Peninsula and the rivers, uh, that certainly is an eye opener. Uh, you know, holes in the roof, bits of duct tape. Um, there's been some choice experiences. I remember on one occasion coming back uh, in the helicopter and we stopped to kind of fuel up uh, in in a, in a kind of a depot in the middle of nowhere in the tundra. And uh, clearly the pilots had had one too many the night before when they opened the door. One of the guys literally fell out uh, and then they were fueling up. And while they were fueling up, as I looked out, one of them is smoking a cigarette. And I'm going, God, we're all inside here. If this goes up, like, we're all going up with it. Um, and so, you know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit kind of, uh, I suppose, out there. There were just, I have to say, notwithstanding the horrible thing that's going on, uh, the fishing guides we had were just lovely people, full of fun, uh, very brave and very strong people. And um, Some of these guys were walking the boats down the river to put you into the right spots. I remember one occasion I thought I'd caught the bottom. <laughs> There was no way I could move uh, uh, this fly. And I said, God, I've caught the bottom. We were using, at times, big copper tubes in um, in deep water. So I, so rather than sacrifice the fly, this guy says, no, no. And he walked the boat into the middle of the river, only for me to see the tube coming up the line, to realize that a salmon, which had literally just anchored itself on the bottom in the current. And I felt such a fool. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> And uh, you you learn, and you know, it was just a gorgeous environment. Again, the bears, the woodpeckers, uh, the nature, the bird life. The one thing that struck me most about, I was luckily uh, for my uh, 50th birthday, I got to um, go to the Pinoy, saved up for it. I think it was a special present uh, for my family as well. And, uh, you know, Pinoy is probably one of the famous rivers in Russia and the thing that struck me most about it was not the salmon fishing, but was the sea trout fishing. And uh, you know, in the week there. I think I had 60 sea trout. Uh, they were all like between four or five pounds and they almost had no mass in them. I mean, you couldn't kill a salmon or touch a salmon, but you could have sea trout for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Um, and it was just phenomenal fishing. Had I known it, I probably would have brought a lighter rod and just gone sea trout fishing. It was spectacular. Yeah, but I was lucky to have been in Russia. Um,
0: and actually, sorry, what was your best salmon from Russia? They're not huge, I have to be honest,
2: which I don't think I've ever caught many big fish. I think the biggest was probably somewhere around the 12 pound mark. That would probably have been the biggest. Um There, there wasn't huge fish caught in the Pinoy the week I was there. I think the largest was about maybe 18, 19 pounds. Uh, the other rivers I fished was the Kitsa, which you know a large fish there was probably about 12 pounds. Um, um and then I fished the Umba and the Umba was a bit of a disaster, really, because unfortunately, they'd introduced um pink salmon or pacifics there um, many years ago during the, uh, uh, but maybe it's back, but during the real communist era uh, to feed the local <laughs> population. And of course, the pinks come back into rivers, those that know the breeding cycle. Every second year. So, you know, they were in and uh, that was really not a pleasant experience uh, with pinks everywhere. And they tend to breed earlier than the Atlantic salmon. Then they're all rotting. There's kind of a macabre scene of. A fish with half fins kind of fl- trying to flop their way back down river having spawned while the fl- flesh is rotting off them so that's not very nice but on the plus side of that it attracted a lot of bears and we spent at least one afternoon just watching the, uh, the grizzlies uh, feeding on the salmon it was spectacular to see it in the wild uh, with her two cubs and things it was a beautiful experience
0: when did you first uh, did the travel bug kind of Fly, fish, and travel bug, get under your skin. When did you start doing this? Because the first trip I did was obviously, as I said, this year to Greenland. And I came back on, oh man, I have to do this again and again and again. A month, money, financial notwithstanding, and family notwithstanding but there is something about that when you go and Tom, you New Zealand, I think was a big trip for you that you loved Tom. When you went to mm-hmm. New Zealand, yeah. there's something about that travel, isn't it? That it just gets under your skin and you are just kind of going, Oh, where can I go to next? How can I make it happen? Like when, did, when did you first start getting into that?
2: Well, I suppose I started when I was in that phase of trying to catch the really big fish, uh, when I was blue water fishing. So when I was kind of sea fishing with lures and trolling, um, we went on a couple of trips, uh, uh, I remember one trip to Malindi in Kenya, I went to the trip to Venezuela and a trip to Tobago. But again, I, I have a friend in the army who I fish with a lot. Uh, so a shout out to Bob Hurley in the <laughs> army there. And uh, at the time, we'd be looking for kind of last minute deals. So the thing was we'd actually get the flight, first of all, and then we'd figure out what fishing you could do there. So there was a bit of that going on. Um, uh, so I remember that with the trip to uh, uh, Venezuela in predictor. And then after that, you know, you start, like everybody else, looking up who does fishing trips. I remember going one of my first major organized fishing trips to the guy by the name of Peter Petzer in London. Um, met him years later in Ucderard, fly fishing. So it's a small world and then I suppose I was lucky enough to become friends with Dave Whitton, who who is a legend, really, in fly fishing in Ireland. Um, and Dave organized regular trips uh, to far-flung face, places. And I have to hand it to him um, for a man in his 90s and now in his 100th year to be organizing trips to uh, Russia, to Iceland, to Greenland. He introduced me to Greenland. Uh, and he has such a wealth of uh, fishing experience, uh, I can honestly say I've learned most about salmon fishing from him, uh, certainly. Um, and you, know, we usually have a party of very interesting people. That's the other thing I enjoy about fishing. You meet very interesting people from diverse backgrounds and, and you learn a lot. And I don't think there's any point, for me personally anyway, there's no point in going on a fishing trip where I know I could probably master it easily and catch a lot of fish. I always try and go somewhere where I'm not sure actually I'd be able to manage it and push myself a little bit. And you probably felt the same going to Greenland, Dara, did you?
0: Yeah, 100%. I, well, the question I was asking actually was, did you, when you were doing the trips, would you always go with a group of people or would you ever have gone on your own? or Because the reason why I wanted that is, is when I went to Greenland, obviously I knew Glenda and Noel, but I didn't know anybody else. But the trip, what made the trip for me was meeting yourself and all the other guys on the trip. The fishing was incredible, but you know, what really topped it off was the camaraderie, was meeting the fly anglers. And that for me, you know, was what the standout of it was. And the very fact that, you know, we're chatting to you all these months later about, you know, tell us your stories about that. And that to me is, is part of the kind of magic of it, isn't it?
2: Well, I think absolutely. And also you become a better fisherman from being with good fishermen. So I always try and tag along in groups where those good fishermen because I'm learning. Uh, and like I said, I hope to be good one day. Um, um, so y- you do. Uh, and I the camaraderie and the fun we've had was just brilliant. Uh, and similarly on these trips uh, you know, that I've been lucky enough to be on over the last, I suppose, 25, 30 years, you meet very interesting people uh, who really, you know, I think once the ice is broken in the early stages, people really want to help one another to fish and you learn uh, really interesting things. Uh, and you have some very funny experiences as well with people. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I I I I usually go in a group. I don't really head off on my own, but um, I suppose actually there's another challenge to head off on your own uh, and meet people out there and see what happens.
0: You come across anglers like I think a new problem is you know the hardcore who would you know would want to be fishing twelve sixteen hours a day, and it's about the numbers and it's about getting all the fish there, what they can do. Whereas what struck me about yourself was. And and it's interesting what you're saying about the different places you wanted to go. It was the curiosity, you know, you wanted to go to a place to experience it, you know, like whether it's West Africa or, you know, any of these other kind of far flung exotic places, that the travel, you know, they say travel obviously broadens the mind. And that's the fishing is just one reason to go to these places, isn't it, like?
2: Well, oh, I, th- I think so. And I usually pick a destination where I'm kind of interested to see the nature or the environment as well. I mean, I think you and I were probably both um, very interested in Greenland. You know, we had a hell of a trip of, of fun. I don't think I'll ever forget that uh, third approach uh, to, the, to the airport and the fog. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget that and picking my fingernails out of the seats afterwards. Um, you
0: know. And 24 hours in Manerstock.
2: Exactly. Oh, my God. Yes. So, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you you, you get great experiences. And um, yeah, so I I do agree with you. I tend to pick places that I want to see anyway that are inherently interesting outside of fishing. I think fishing is the vehicle that brings me there, but it's mm-hmm. not the sole reason that I go there. All the places
1: you've gone to, how many places have outside of Russia, how many places have you returned to?
2: Um I've returned to Iceland. Um I I haven't gone salmon fishing in Iceland, interestingly. Mm. I've gone up actually to fish at Tingerville Lake um in kind of April, early May, and I've gone up to fish what is ostensibly are spent sea trout in the rivers um in um April. Now these are still monster fish and they still fight very hard and they're hungry. Uh but The bird life and the sounds of the birds starting to breed in Iceland as spring sets in in the meadows in April is astonishing uh, to hear. Uh, It reminded me of a saltwater marsh in my own town, Kinsale, which as a child was a phenomenon of nature, which sadly was overdeveloped uh, and which we didn't appreciate what we had in the Khmogh Marsh, but... To hear it again in Iceland was just amazing. And the other place I've gone back to was Greenland. So the trip, Dara, where you and I met, and I introduced you to Yacht Rock, um, that trip uh, was a second return, but it was a very different experience. I had been on the southeast coast of Greenland prior to that, where we were fishing very short, um, almost sea run uh, runs from little locks into the estuaries. Um, whereas now, uh, and, uh, when I was up with you near you know, it was a long river, uh, a more traditional type river, so a very different type of fishing, very different landscape. Um, and again... You know, just the sheer beauty and nature of the place was inspiring. Um, so, I, you know, there's loads of places I haven't been to. I wouldn't want to come across the person who's been ever. I haven't. So I haven't yeah. been to Argentina, which is on my bucket list. I haven't been to New Zealand, which would be on the bucket list. I haven't got to Alaska, which would be on a bucket list. And I suppose ever since I saw that movie, A River Runs Through It, I've got a hankering to fish Montana. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I think most people would stick after that. It's interesting
1: you say Argentina because... I think Argentina intrigues me uh, as a country, and I think at one stage it was once was the seventh uh, richest nation in the world, and like at the moment has a hundred percent inflation rates. You know, uh, it's it's a place, I mean, particularly after the World Cup and seeing about McAllister, and that there was an Irish contingent that would went, went out there. Um, yeah, it's a place I'd love to go, and I would like to go for the fishing. And one of the reasons I was asking did you go back to any place? Was it Solely for the fishing you went back Do you go back to Iceland on account of the nature Or the fishing
2: I I can't separate the two, that's me personally Great, Uh, excellent I I can't separate the two They're the one experience for me Um, Mm. And your fishing for me (laughs) Maybe that's why I'm not a good fisherman Has never been so much about um, Catch, or at least nowadays It's not about catching the big fish Or the numbers, it's more about the process And the environment I'm in Rather than the actual catch, of course. I mean, listen—if I caught nothing, would I? Be, I wouldn't be maybe terribly happy. Um, but you know, I have left places where the fishing hasn't been great, uh, and I still had a great time uh, because, as Dara said, you know, the company you meet is invariably full of fun and good humor, uh, and you learn a bit anyway. Uh, and the environment—the environments I tend to go to usually have have that have something that I'm after. Uh, the wilderness, um, the wildlife, um, and I think uh, I worry for the next generation that maybe that same opportunities won't be there uh, in, in terms of seeing true wilderness. Uh, I think Dara and myself could both probably say I could see the first tentative steps towards kind of development in Greenland. Uh, did uh, you
1: you notice that too? Because I know yeah. Dara said that when he came back. You definitely noticed that, Ronan. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: And of course, the, the Inuit people there need uh, mm. to have an income. Um, I mean, up until then, I suppose, no more than their own country, uh, their pattern was to emigrate to Denmark, to go to college in Denmark, to get jobs in Denmark. And I suppose for the Inuit people in Greenland, tourism is going to be, um, which, I mean, there are probably natural resources, but tourism is, is going to be a natu- an obvious uh, industry there. Mm. It's how they develop it, of course, uh, that is the key and um, i think they can develop it in such a way that keeps it wild and that attracts the right kind of uh, tourism they want and um, they have great respect for their landscape i did note that
0: costa rica is probably a good example for countries i think to learn from i've been to costa rica um, a good few times uh, my wife's best friend is from there and you know you've seen how they've developed nature along with the tourism side of it and it's it can be expensive as well you know they you know they they make sure it's a kind of a premium product as well that pays for the kind of upkeep and, and and the kind of mindset towards it um but like i remember i think we were saying before around when we were talking about it when we were over there is you know if you're a local inuit you know would you rather be out hunting you know in the you know in sub-zero temperatures having a tough life or you could be an airbnb host <laughs> you know what I mean? like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, you're not going to blame them for wanting to take the easy route like you know but like you said it's just how it develops yeah,
2: it's how it develops. And also, I think, you know, just becoming guides to showing people the nature and the landscape that they have. I mean, we we made big mistakes here, I think, even if I reflect on our own rivers. And, um, you know, we didn't move early enough as a country to protect our rivers. I often look at these great rivers. Now, the shore still is a great river, but I suppose the Blackwater and its heyday would be an example. Um, Even my own home river of the Bandon which was you know a brilliant river it's still a good river but it was a brilliant river uh, we didn't protect these rivers enough these rivers that you know snaked their way into the inland towns this was those rivers were the wild atlantic ways of those towns it was their opportunity uh, true salmon fishing true developing the fishing on the river to give them a real crack at tourism where they had no other crack really Um, And I don't think we moved time enough. And, you know, again, if you see, and I have to say this, if you see um, the works that the OPW have done in some of our rivers uh, and the concreting of them as a solution um, uh, to flooding in some of even our West Cork towns um, of Skibreen, Clannacilty, Bandon, you know, they really have made something beautiful rather ugly.
0: Do you think that part of the problem, uh, and Tom, interesting your view on this is that, It was only where tourism was already kind of set in stone. So again, I'm thinking of kind of, you know, Carob and Connemara, that where visitors were coming, that there was an incentive to keep it. Whereas the, the rivers that were flowing through the towns of Cork, say, for example, or the inland places of Ireland, there was a commercial aspect to it. Towns had to be built. And so there was little, whereas... Well, I suppose I'm trying to say is if there was more tourism built up around it, that people would have taken greater, greater care, but they haven't. So it's kind of like, well, you know, just leave the tourism, go out west and out to Connemara and all there. And should sure, look, the rest look just has to be what it is like.
1: Yeah, well, I just think, yeah, I agree there totally where the tourism was. There's also a thing in a fair, and maybe you know about this as well, Ronan, in places that in places where the tourist angler wasn't coming in, the local anglers didn't want to see anybody else coming in. It's a good point. And I will be honest with you, And I I know of a place. Uh, look, I know where I was told. Now, d- don't bother writing about that, Tom. Seriously. You know, go sooner if you didn't. You know, and that that's there, you know. So when the tourism structures weren't there, yeah. a lot of the local guys will keep it to themselves. But here is the problem. Once the pressure came on them, let's say with the OPW, for example, doing something or with something else, with, let's say, I'll take an example of an industry coming in and destroying part of the river because there were so few and so mm. little of them, they weren't able to put up a good fight against it. Whereas, mm. let's say, for example, if somebody wants to put a chemical plant at the top of Loch Corp now, there might be a bit of uh, opposition against it because it will be proven as a point that you know the tourism benefit and the, the cash benefit of Loch Corp to the area would outweigh any anything coming in and affecting us, so th- there's definitely a bit of that in us, you know. Yeah. And then when things when things start coming against these fisheries, um, there wasn't enough people to fight against them, and there were only lone voices. And I visit him; he was only you not know, fishing.
0: What do you think,
2: Ron? Um, I think the state needs to recognise what are its prime fishing rivers and maybe what aren't, such as prime rivers fishing rivers. I'm interested to hear your comments, Tom, and I would agree with you about maybe the xenophobia towards maybe anglers. But <laughs> that being said, there was enough private fisheries to allow that to be developed as well. Do you? Know I mean, mm. I've been to fishing in Scotland, and I can you know book my couple of days, and you know, um, there's no resentment towards me about the local Scottish fishermen who are also booking their couple of days, uh, and so I, I I don't see that as a problem. I think the state just hasn't realized that its rivers are a national asset uh, that belong for the good of the people, but in themselves that they are not just to be sole targets of commercialization and exploitation, that the rivers in themselves, you know, your culture, for example, or culture of you know, the Boeing, the salmon of knowledge, um Lehman Verdon and Leek Slip from Norse Times, these things are part of our culture. And they in themselves should be protected purely for the good of that. Um, Of course, they can be properly kind of commercialized uh, in a sensitive way that allows people to draw the benefit from that river as well uh, without necessarily ruining it. I do think there is enough room, but we never had a proper rivers authority, I think, that looked at it seriously. I know we have inland waterways, but I don't think they ever had a proper kind of strategy uh, that I was aware of. Uh, to manage our rivers for the benefit of people, but primarily for the benefit of the river. Um, because mm. the river itself must exist in its own right, in my view.
0: I think it's a really good point, actually, when you make you yep. know, talk about the Boyne or, you know, Leak Slip. Um, I always bring it back to, actually, I always think a great, great case study was the daughter and Ken Whelan telling me about basically how they the uh, they got the local communities engaged with the river. So they might not have been anglers, but they lived near the river and, you know, because they you know they helped save it and from an environmental perspective and you know, kind of helped fight off the pollution, people felt an ownership to the river because they probably lived near on a Saturday they'd love to go for a walk, they would bring the dogs out. so and then they started organizing, you know people would do um, litter cleanups, you know and people got slowly involved. and like I said, most of them probably weren't anglers, but they felt an ownership to the river and I think that's where we maybe might be missing a trick. I think because I, I even see where I live here in Tipperary you know, there's a, a tributary of the shore goes through a small little village where I live and like salmon spawn there, there's trout there. And I'm pretty sure the kids, most of the kids wouldn't know anything about that river. You know, just a small little thing like that is that if you can get kids out of the classroom, you know, sampling and seeing what's there, does it, they, they grow up with that kind of ownership. And that's why I always say anglers are kind of the best kind of ambassadors and kind of protectors of us, but there's not enough of us out there so I think we kind of need to move beyond, like you said, whether it's kind of cultural, historical, that kind of ownership aspect to it. Um, but I think it's only going to start personally, like you said, it's not gonna be a top-down approach. I think it has to be a bottom-up approach. That's the only way I'd see it happening. Like yeah, I, I, I think,
1: think so. I and I think Ronan, has touched on it very much there, of the cultural importance of so many of the river shows. I, I just think Ronan, they were probably taken for granted.
2: No, I, undoubtedly, I, I live mm. on the dodder, uh, as Dara uh, alluded to it, and you know, I fly, f- <laughs> it's a treasure. Uh, coming mm. home from work, I've got my little fly ride, my little 4 weight in the back of the car. I come home, stop for half an hour, an hour on the way home, have a few casts, beautiful wild brown trout fishery still. And you're right, because the community have embraced it and taken the river as mm. their own, um, it has protected it. I mean, it's amazing, this corridor that... I can walk down the road and see otters, um, you know, teaching their kind of young, uh, teaching their, um, little cubs, uh, how to catch, uh, fish. Um, you know, that there's badgers running along that corridor in the middle of Dublin city, uh, kingfishers, um, dippers. It's a beautiful, um, river. And I agree with you, Dara. Um, I think more education needs to be done. Um, about the importance of rivers in themselves and there's a lot of talk about biodiversity but you know biodiversity is a little bit more than just planting a flower for bees we've got to teach you know the whole link uh, in the chain um, and also teach people to appreciate the rivers uh, and the life that that is dependent on those rivers Um, and as you alluded to it as well in terms of we all have a responsibility to use the rivers as well. You're probably aware, Dara, there was a tragedy in the shore a couple of years ago where I don't know how it came in, but some virus came in and killed all the old crayfish in the river. Uh, and again, I noticed even with fishermen themselves, we're not in the habit of cleaning our boots, cleaning our equipment between rivers. And you know, we, we, we need to up our game in terms of responsibility as well uh, uh, to our rivers. Um, and so all those things, I think I, I agree with you, um, Dara. I think once you get community ownership of the river from the bottom up, as you say, the river is then protected.
0: Come here, let's um, move back to fly fishing matters. <laughs> oh, no, fly <people>. fishing. Sorry, <laughs> fly fishing. Yes, fly fishing. Because we'll do, we'll do Spanish bullfighting next, but that's that's a whole other <laughs> podcast.
2: Well, let me tell you one of my first anecdotes, one of my first fly fishing trips away with Dave, the same said David Whitron who introduced me to Iceland. And, you know, I've been practicing hard now because I realized I was going with good fly fishermen, right? Mm-hmm. So we're up on the river anyway, Laksa Kios, uh fishing, and we're down to the river first day. It's freezing. It's probably minus one or zero. There's a few ice floats coming down the river, but we're fishing anyway, fly fishing, getting the line out there. So All of a sudden, my casting goes to pot, and I, I'm having a crisis, a bit like a golfer whose swing has gone awry. So I start trying to move away from the group. I'm so embarrassed, only to see my uh, my colleague at the time, uh, Fergal Quinn, also moving away from me. And I said, God, it must be shocking. It must be really disrupting the water. He doesn't want to be next to me. Um, only about 15, 20 minutes later, when the sun came out, did I catch the glint uh, off the rings and the rod. And of course, what was happening is that the water was freezing on the rings. And that's why the line wouldn't go on. <laughs> so I had to melt the ice with my uh, each, after every couple of casts with my fingers, and when I got back to the lodge, and I said, "God," I said to Fergal, "I said I, I was having a real crisis there." I said, "I'm sorry, that's why I moved away. I was so embarrassed." And he says, "I was having the same problem before I realised there was the ice, and I was moving away from you." <laughs> so you do get funny moments, yeah.
0: Um, I want to say that. how do you do much fly fishing, um, during the season in Ireland yourself, um, Ron? I know obviously you're busy. You work in the medical, um, profession, so like you get a chance to kind of fish the rivers around Ireland?
2: Well, I'm lucky enough to live next to Dodder. So I, you know, I do cast the line there reasonably regularly. Um, but I, again, when I'm home, I'm, I'm from Consale So When I'm home, I try and fish my local river member of the band and anglers. So I try and fish my local river um, and, you know, I fish the shore and the Slaney a bit when I can. And then if I can get a long weekend away, I'll head west uh, and I'll try and fish, um I do like the Bondura in Delphi. I have to be honest with you. I'm not a massive fan of lake fishing, but I love that little river. There's something really picturesque about it. I love those little nooks and crannies, those little small runs, those little potholes, uh, that whole fish. And it's such a beautiful river to fish. I could walk up and down that river all day and be in seventh heaven. Uh, but I love my own river, home river of Bandon as well. Uh, the shores. I think every river has got a unique yeah. ambiance to it. It's like an atmosphere that a river has, uh, and it all brings something unique uh, to it. So, yeah, I I'd I'd, I'd I'd try and fish as often as I can.
0: And Salmon your favorite quarry? I
2: think what's happened there is that it becomes um, almost an obsession, um, you know, to, to catch this fish that you can't catch and that you shouldn't be catching. And it does become a bit of an obsession. I suppose actually, if I wasn't salmon fishing so much, I'd probably be a much better all-round fisherman. But I spend so much time salmon fishing. Uh, there is an obsession to it, and of course, that moment of glory when it comes is just—it's—it's it's just fantastic. But I think one of my favourite nights fishing was actually in the Kells Blackwater uh, with my late great friend Paddy Kniff, who was Mister Dodder in my view. Uh, a fantastic trout angler Paddy was, uh, but he brought me down to the Kells Blackwater one evening uh, with a, a kind of a sedge pattern he tied, which he said to me didn't look very tidy. Uh, but he says, have a go. And literally in that there was a golden 45 minutes uh, as the sun was sinking uh, on the Kells Blackwater. I got three magnificent wild trout between two and three pounds. They were just magnificent fish. And I just came in with a grin on my face, and I could see the absolute delight in Paddy's uh, face that he had introduced me. It was like being the teacher whose student gets an A in the subject you're teaching. He was just absolutely thrilled for me, and it was it was such a, a beautiful moment for uh, for both of us, uh, for teacher and for student. Uh, it was gorgeous. It then reminded me of a story uh, of the sedge being so badly, um, uh, badly, uh, well, not badly tied, but. Not not like you'd get in a, a shop type sedge, but I remember Sean McManaman, a, a, a name that most people will know in Ireland as well as a fly fisherman and salmon fisherman. I remember Sean telling me the story one time uh, when he went down to a river and there was a guy on the opposite bank sitting in a car chair and he was fishing late into the evening and he seemed to be catching you know, good trout after good trout. And uh, Sean shouted across to him and he said, what are you using uh, and your man shouted back, seat, uh, seat fly. And Sean said, what are you using? And he shouted back, seat, seat fly. And Sean said, what type of fly is that? i never heard of that. And literally your man stuck his finger into the car seat and pulled out a piece of foam. And he was literally just sticking a piece of foam on the hook, cast it across the river and ripping it across the, to, to, to uh, mimic the wake of the sage and bang, bang. <laughs> So I often forget uh, Sean's great story Of the car seat fly So there you go Not every fly Needs to look neat It just needs To create the the appearance Just because You showed enough Yeah it (laughs) does Tom Hirona Reminds
1: me Just reminded me there Of uh, If you've ever read John Gierak He says um, Don't plan the fishing trip Of a lifetime Plan a lifetime Of fishing trips And you've definitely (laughs) Definitely done that I think it's Absolutely (laughs) Fantastic. So on that, where's your next trip? When's it planned? Uh,
2: I, when is it? Well, I think Darren and myself are hatching up, maybe. Uh, I think we both have a hankering. I have to save up now because, you know, the, you know, you have to put a bit of planning. And to be fair, we have a very generous family as well uh, and leave me head off. Um, this year was a tough year, but then we came out after three tough years of pandemic. Mm. And personally, it was quite a tough time for myself. Um, but so, yeah, I think I, I think I do want to see Argentina uh, I think there are probably something similar. We're both trying to save up for that trip. Maybe I think it's kind of intermediate price range as well, because you know that mm. is a factor in some of these trips as well. Do you know what I mean? It is a, it is a factor uh, uh, to be borne in mind. And of course you hear the stories where you know people go down uh, and the weather is just wrong and you've traveled a long way. <laughs> yeah. And, and nothing ain't going to happen.
1: I've heard that of sea, guys who've gone through the sea trout. It's not always yeah. the land of milk and honey when they get there, you know, uh, Conditions can dictate against you.
0: Um, well, I, me- I remember Tom actually. The guides in Greenland. you Remember Lawson, um, Ronan, and yeah, he, I, do, I yeah, remember yeah. asking him, and he was saying like they prefer the the because he guides down there, Tom, and they prefer yeah. to see trout fishing down there because it's more technical, whereas the kind of the char in Greenland. They regard it as a, there's a lot of fish there. You know, you just throw the fly out, you'll catch it. Like whereas the sea trout, yeah, they're harder to get. Like the, and the fish are bigger, and it's a kind of mm. if you get them, it's more of a um, more of a kind of a victory, I suppose, when you get them in. Like so, you should join us, Tom.
2: Yeah, <laughs>
1: edit, edit, I'm within earshot. <laughs> <laughs> Editing won't work. It's
2: for the <laughs> podcast. It's for work. It's research. <laughs> research is that you're going down on research exactly
1: well i i'm, get, I'm getting a small bucket list on well small to medium bucket list i'm going to the orkneys this year
2: oh, oh no
1: yeah 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 we're decided we were going to the orkneys so yeah are, are you sea, sea trout fishing there. are you sea no, trout fishing it, it'll be july it'll be it'll be just the brown trout in the lakes okay yeah okay. so we hope to do all the all the lakes there yeah so and that's been on my bucket list yeah, uh, for uh, the one. Is there sea there. trout? Is there sea, there trout, is sea trout. trout? They fish the sea and um, the sea trout there. It's funny. It, it's generally early in the year, and uh, and actually, I think it's a bit like what you mentioned in Iceland, because a lot of them, as far as I'm aware, a lot of the sea trout that they catch, they're catching in in February, March, and they're they're spent fish, um, but they're they're fishing in the in the salt water for a lot of them, and then there's the lake there, like Stennis, which is brackish, and that is one of the best sea trout lakes there, and like. Apparently in that lake, you have as much chance of catching a flounder Hmm. as, well, not as much chance, but there's a possibility that you can catch a flounder. But um, sea trout fishing, I think, won't be on the time we're there, as far as I know. It's brown trout we planned anyway.
0: Ronan, last question, and thanks a million for your time. Um, I feel like there's a a million other stories we haven't Scratch Definitely yes, we'll I don't think I told anybody
2: anything about fishing anyway. It <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. That's, that's apart what from are. that, apart from <laughs> that new fly that you can make from a car seat,
0: <laughs> does it? Did it matter what type of car? Ford. Oh, you know, Ford. from Cork it has to be Ford. So, Kieran, tell us, your last question. Is what is your most memorable fish on the fly? And my God, don't let it just be hmm. a brown trout from the band and now. Come <laughs> on, yes. Well, well, I, well I,
2: the answer to that is twofold. Um, and I'm going to say probably the one that stuck out was on the bandon because I'd been up. I just started salmon fishing. I'd spent a week with Brian Healy uh, up in uh, Delphi in the west of Ireland uh, with Brian really teaching me expertly and encouraging me and telling me for the umpteen time that cast deserves a fish i heard that once more (laughs) i was going to wrap the rod around him (laughs) sorry brian (laughs) he eventually felt sorry for me i think he took me down to the falls in earth and he kind of dangled a fly over and we caught a salmon and poor brian then had to scale down the rock to bring it in which i felt sorry about but he'd been teaching me so much during the week when i was on my own down in um David Lamb's uh, waters in Kilcolman and Abandon. And I went down, it was a sunny day and I was thought, God, this is probably going to be hopeless. But I just fresh after the education. So I remember Brian telling me, if there's a sunny day, wait for a cloud. So I sat by the river, I waited for a cloud to come over. I thought I saw a fish uh, and I'd asked uh, David Lamb what fly would he use? And he said, nothing more than a silver stout. And uh, so, um, I waited for the cloud to come over, cast where I thought I saw fish because I wasn't good at spotting them. Uh, and bang, I caught it. Uh, and it was about a four pound grill spot. God, was I as proud as hell. Um, you know, having done it on my own, um, you know, and followed everything Brian had taught me and, and David's fly. But I suppose after that, I was lucky enough to be in Scotland last year on the spay in spring. And of course, there's something iconic about the spay, spay casting, Scotland, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose if you're going to get a hole in one, it's probably going to be up in St. Andrews. Uh, the uh, salmon equivalent of that golfing would be probably to catch a spring salmon on the spay. Uh, and I managed to do that uh, again in, you know, tricky conditions, but I saw the salmon coming up and I just waited for him to come into the pool uh, and bang, bingo. I was lucky enough. And again, that was a lovely experience to catch a spring salmon on display. So those two stand out for me amongst a myriad of all sorts of fish for different reasons uh, that I've caught. Uh, but yeah it's it's great and listen before we sign off I do want to I know you don't do special requests but I do want to remember uh, um uh, as I'm talking in my thoughts and my prayers a great friend Mary uh, Donovan who's very ill in the hospital at the moment and Mary if you get a chance to listen to this uh just to say I'm um, thinking about you and god we've had some great uh, fishing trips together myself and Mary in Greenland and Iceland and Russia etc cetera, etc cetera. anyone who remembers Mary she was a great surgeon but everyone who remembers Mary on the banks we will remember what a great character she is one of one of fly fishing's superb uh, uh, fishermen uh, and characters so thinking of you
0: mary well it's a a lovely note to sign off on our and i think in fairness that sums it up exactly i think the conversation we've had about it you know being around the world all around ireland and ultimately it still comes down to the people you know, and the people you meet, and the people along the journey, and you know everything else that's combined to it. Ron, we have to get you back on in 2023, Um and I'll have to start planning for for Patagonia as well. You have so. that
2: car seat fly a lash, though, seriously, Tom, up the Orkneys, I'm definitely, I'm
1: definitely giving it a go. You need but to find an def- old,
2: you need to find an old Ford Escort. Apparently, they're great. Those seats.
1: Well, here's the thing: I think what you should do is try that fly in Patagonia. <laughs> And then come back, and we'll have we'll have the two the, yourself and Dara will be talking about catching uh, gigantic sea trout on foam
2: flies. In Patagonia.
0: Hey, Ron, would like to like to, to see a show lost in that now when you got into Patagonia. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I think we'll uh, we'll have to name it after Sean McManaman, We'll have to call it the McManaman um, something or other. McManaman Mustang, maybe. <laughs> the McManaman Mustang. The
0: Mustang. <laughs> Tom, will you work on something? Will you work on a creation there?
2: Oh,
1: definitely. I'm going right to the vice now. And as you've seen, for those of you who don't have visual, I have the, the material to hand. I've just shown us. <laughs> <it. laughs> well, as I said,
0: it's about fly fishing and a lot more. So, Ronan, thank you for joining us and Tight um, Lines for 2023. Pleasure. And likewise to you guys. Pleasure to be invited. Thanks, Melvin.
1: Our thanks to Ronan Collins for joining us on the show. And don't forget to rate, review, and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast
0: from. Plus you can keep up to date on IrelandFly.com as well as on Instagram and myself and Tom will be back with another episode of People and Places of By Fishing in Ireland.